the term marriage to your job can carry with it some negative connotations, but in the competitive world of academic research, where relationships are so important, a working partnership with your life partner may be just the ticket. My guests today are case in point. I'm Bogda Koswara, and this is Supportive Care Matters. Today's conversation is sponsored by Kanti. My guests today are Professor Doan Ngo, an academic pharmacist and translational researcher in the field of cardiometabolic illness, and Professor Aaron Sverdlov, a clinician scientist cardiologist and a cardio-oncologist from Newcastle, Australia. Together, they have established the first in Australia bench-to-bedside cardio-oncology program combining basic and clinical research into cancer therapy-related cardiotoxicity. Doan and Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. We're very excited. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So you work in an exciting and novel field. Perhaps we should start with a bit of an explanation of what it is that you actually do. So maybe tell us a little bit about your work. And Doan, maybe you can start. As you mentioned before, we work in the field of cardio-oncology. And what it is, it's essentially cardiovascular supportive care in for patients undergoing cancer treatments during, after, and beyond their cancer journey. It's a full-spectrum cardiovascular health assessment from the time prior to patients receiving any cancer treatments, monitoring their cardiovascular health during the actual treatments, and preventative measures for subsequent follow-up. So in that work of cardio-oncology, what aspects of cardio-oncology do you each address Well, we actually sort of overlap a little bit. So we both kind of trained pretty much very similarly. So Aaron has also been able to do the basic drug bench molecular biology, drug discovery kind of cardiovascular research. And very similarly to me, I've done the molecular bench work and I've also done translational and clinical research as well. And obviously Aaron as a clinician is also well-versed in that. So we kind of overlap in terms of our expertise, and that enables us to transition the full spectrum from bench to bedside in the cardio-oncology field. I think we have quite a unique, I guess, set of skills between the two of us. And as Don mentioned, combining basic and translational work and also having the clinical perspective, which is very important. It's important to remember we always think of cardio-oncology or it's something that's you know potentially related to anti-cancer medications, but it's important to remember that that's only a component of it. With improving cancer care, people who are starting their cancer journey are getting older with more comorbidities and other conditions that are risk factors for heart disease or people who already have established heart disease. It doesn't have to be caused by cancer or related to cancer therapies. However, those conditions can either be exacerbated during cancer therapy or just naturally progress with passage of time. And it's important to take a holistic approach to that and also be mindful that, you know, the cancer therapy and cancer doesn't exist in isolation, that it's important to look at the entire patient, their journey, and what can we do to actually manage their cardiovascular health even before they begin their cancer journey as best as possible. And so our breadth of skills, I think, covers that all the way from that preventative aspect all the way to treatment and drug discovery quite well. So Aaron, as a clinician, can you give us a bit of an example of what 
aspects of cardio-oncology care would a patient diagnosed with cancer require? What sort of interventions or strategies or processes would be undertaken as part of good cardio-oncology care? I guess in an ideal world, what we would want is obviously no patient to have cancer in the first place, but realistically, primary or even primordial prevention of any cardiovascular issues, primary prevention and secondary prevention. What I mean is, say the patient is captured at the beginning of their cancer journey, it's, it's ensuring that outside of the cancer, we have to look at the patient, what is their health like beyond the cancer? What are their risk factors? So in our case, cardiovascular risk factors that can be managed prior to cancer therapy starting, whether that's high blood pressure, high cholesterol, physical inactivity is very important, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, basically managing cardiovascular risk factors that are already pre-existing. We know that the more cardiovascular risk factors, and especially if they're poorly managed, do worsen patients' outcomes, not just cardiovascular outcomes, but also cancer outcomes, unfortunately. So, This baseline assessment is very, very important, making sure that we capture cardiovascular and general lifestyle factors, manage them as best as we can, give appropriate lifestyle advice, exercise advice, which is very, very important, both in terms of improving cardiovascular and also improving cancer outcomes. There is plethora of evidence that exercise improves both types of outcome. Then you would assess whether the patient beyond risk factors has any actual cardiovascular disease per se that has already been established and managed that. And then obviously taking into account what anti-cancer therapy the patient will receive, whether it's systemic therapy, with or without surgery, with or without radiation therapy, with or without new targeted therapies, immunotherapies, and individualized approach to surveillance for any cardiovascular issues, taking into account, as I say, cancer type, cancer treatment, and pre-existing factors, and appropriate sort of surveillance strategy device. And then obviously, based on what happens, hopefully, the patient sails through without any issues and no red flags are triggered. And then, of course, the big part comes into survivorship, because after all, that's the longest, hopefully, phase for that patient. And we need to make sure that post-active cancer treatment care is appropriate for the baseline risk factors the patient has had and whatever cancer therapy they may have received during their cancer journey as to what particular surveillance in the long run is required. The idea is to make it as individualized and personalized as possible. So does that mean that every patient who's undergoing cancer treatment or every patient that's diagnosed with cancer, should they see a cardio-oncologist? No, I think that's probably taking it a little bit too far. I think that only those patients who are truly deemed to be high risk or medium to high risk should probably see ideally a cardio-oncologist or a cardiologist with an interest in the area. I think that even though it may sound complicated, but really a lot of patients would only require a brief clinical assessment, something that's frequently done anyway, blood pressure, heart rate, just an ECG and a medical history. And if they have no risk factors, then they can continue as per usual care. Even with some risk factors, those could effectively be managed as part of a multidisciplinary team in collaboration with their general practitioner. And only those patients, I guess, with either significant burden of comorbidities and risk factors or, you know, well-established cardiovascular disease or those who are likely to receive combinations of multiple potentially cardiotoxic drugs 
should probably see a cardio-oncologist. I suspect that majority of patients could have just baseline assessment by their treating cancer physician with the help of a general practitioner. As I listen to you describing interventions that are required as part of cardio-oncology care, you've really emphasized management of risk factors. And it's apparent that many of the risk factors for inferior cardiovascular outcomes are similar to risk factors for inferior cancer outcomes, be it inactivity or obesity, smoking, etc. It seems to me that if one were to invest in behavioral modification cardio-oncology, you're effectively getting two for the price of one. And maybe that's a compelling argument for patients to be involved in the healthcare, not just for their cancer, but also for their heart. What do you see is the role of patients in being part of the team? I think it's absolutely critical that the patient is involved in their care. It improves patient satisfaction, it improves patient adherence, and makes them more invested into looking after their health. I think without the patient on board, most interventions that we do are really not very effective at all. I think the patient, with or without their carer or their supportive person or the family, are sort of at the center of the care, and the care should really be tailored and personalized to their needs. And the patient has to, I guess, we need to have the patient on board and understanding what their care actually requires. I agree with Aaron completely in that respect. When we first started cardio-oncology and we were hoping to conduct a trial to monitor patients' cardiovascular health from before they start their cancer journey to a few years post their treatment, We actually had quite a high refusal rate to begin with, largely because I think patients who just received the diagnosis of cancer were still coming to terms with it and didn't quite recognize that the risk factors management can actually be effective for both their cancer as well as their cardiac care, largely because they didn't want to burden their family members with extra appointments to actually attend extra cardiovascular assessments. But I think with time and certainly multidisciplinary care and patient education, we've seen a significant uptake of the benefits of having both, you know, like cardiovascular risk reduction strategies like eating healthier, exercising, definitely could have dual impact on both their cancer journey as well as their cardiac long term. So that's a very nice segue into the opportunities in research that kind of that stems from this approach. What do you see as the, let's say, priorities for cardio-oncology research from your perspective and perhaps some opportunities that could be explored in research over the next few years? The latest guideline for cardio-oncology is an extensive amount of work, which also highlighted at the same time significant gaps in the cardio-oncology research, largely because the entire document contained only five recommendations that were of level A evidence that have been supported by uh, multiple clinical trials. So I think there definitely has to be more emphasis on the translational aspect from, you know, even from testing the cardiotoxicity profiles of different anti-cancer drugs, trialing the combination of anti-cancer drugs that may or may not exhibit cardiotoxicity or less cardiotoxicity, all the way to repurposing of existing either cardioprotective drugs or existing anti-cancer agents that may be used in combination for not only non-cardiotoxic, but cardioprotective as well. And that's just a discovery 
space in terms of therapeutics. And obviously, Aaron, he can probably speak more about the risk reduction trials that cardio-oncology work is desperately needed as well. So can we go back to this concept of drug repurposing? And perhaps you could explain to us what drug repurposing is and how it could apply to the field of cardio-oncology and perhaps give us more details of the work that you have done in this area, as this has really been one of the particular areas of expertise of your research. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point and question as well, Bogda. So there have been quite a lot of cardioprotective therapies like statins, ACE inhibitors and so forth being used for either to help increase effectiveness of anti-cancer agents in the preclinical trials, but there hasn't actually been the reverse of whether or not pre-existing anti-cancer therapies can actually provide some form of cardioprotection when in certain combinations. So when I was working in the cardiovascular field, the PARP1 inhibitors in our hands actually showed quite significant improvement in heart failure. And PARP inhibitors are also used in the clinical anti-cancer space. And so since considering the pathways actually intersect, we then sought out to determine whether or not PAP1 inhibition can be used in combination with doxorubicin, a pre-existing anti-cancer therapies. And it turned out that our work showed that it does. So that is an example directly of drug repurposing. Having an anti-cancer agent that is currently in clinical use and in combination with another anti-cancer agent showing the cardioprotection properties. So that is an example directly of thinking it about it the other way around not concluding that every anti-cancer agent is cardiotoxic, but potentially there could be intersecting pathways between multiple different anti-cancer drugs that are already clinically available, just needs to be tested together to see if the cardioprotection or non-cardiotoxicity can be observed. So this is another example of two for the price of one, and perhaps an example of a what you could call reverse cardio-oncology as well. So what are the next steps for this research? Is it ready for clinical trials? Is that the next sort of phase of your research? With Alaparib, with the preclinical data we have, is quite interesting. We're still working in that space. We just want to validate that in a couple of different models before we take it to human use. There is another drug that we have been working with that hasn't been in clinical use for a long time, although it did make an appearance in the 80s back in Europe. And with that medication, which is sort of anthracycline-like compound, but interestingly is actually cardioprotective, once again, in the preclinical space against doxorubicin or anthracycline cardiotoxicity. And that drug is a little bit closer to clinical trials. We're actually working with an Australian biotech company, Race Oncology, who have this drug and likely going into phase 1b to a clinical trials as early as next year. So we have a couple of drugs that we're working on repurposing at different stages of readiness for the big stage. It sounds to me that this is a very well-fitted collaboration between your respective expertise of sort of pharmacy and clinical care that is complementary into the development of new therapies. How does that sort of collaboration work in sort of day-to-day practice? Do you both work on the preclinical work and clinical, or do you divide it a particular way? What has worked for you as a team? 
So I think the thing that works the best for the two of us is that we kind of know what our strengths and weaknesses are quite well. <laughs> so, and it, it happens to be quite complementary. So what I, I'm not particularly great at the finer details of, say, for example, an experimental design or a, a clinical trial. I'm more of here's a concept. This is a new concept and it can and cannot work. So Aaron is a little bit like glass half full kind of person. So he's great to run the ideas past and he will just play the devil's advocate. And then I will somehow <laughs> rejig my ideas and concept in order to cover, I guess, those big holes. And obviously our training kind of intersect and overlap and has been for a long time. So you know, like that actually works out quite well, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so you take being married to the job to a completely new level, really, because of course you're married to each other. Does being married make it easier or harder? Aaron can answer this one. <laughs> oh, thanks for throwing me under the bus. <laughs> in some ways it makes it easier, in some ways obviously it makes it a little bit more challenging. In terms of easier, it's certainly easier for us to cover for each other in terms of, you know, if one of us is away, if one of us is unwell, if one of us is just busy, we have much better understanding and sort of can easily step in into the role if required, you know, and after all, ultimately, no one truly knows who does what. However, obviously, it does make it a bit harder because if it's in the research space, especially when it's grant time, it is busy for both of us at the same time. Unfortunately, when it's a major conference, only one of us generally can go because of the most productive part of our career being the children can't be by themselves. So, you know, there are challenges and there are opportunities as well. Obviously, ability to combine research, run joint labs, make it more efficient and also more streamlined as well. Doan, would you like to add to it? Yeah, so I think, you know, we built a relatively successful program together, largely because we've managed to play with each other's strengths and being able to sort of fill in the weaknesses and covering each other quite well in the expertise. But obviously, you know, one of the other weaknesses is that no one actually knows who does what. But at the end of the day, the success of the program is probably a testament to our ability to sort of work together. It seems to me that when no one really knows who does what, but things are done, that's an example of a perfect integration. So maybe that's actually a success in itself, isn't it? So <laughs> you have indeed built something that is very successful and also very unique. And in bringing together very diverse types of expertise that work very seamlessly in translational research and in clinical practice. Considering looking back at where you sort of how you arrived at that point, do you have any words of advice for junior colleagues who are contemplating a career trajectory in cardio-oncology? So I actually had a quite a unique perspective in that because of being a female in academia, I've had to move multiple institutions many, many times working on quite a large number of different cardiovascular complications. And I have been asked, you know, what is your actual expertise? And at one point in time, I actually couldn't tell them and it has costed me some positions. But I think that that shouldn't be feared 
because of my so many different expertise in different topics, I have been able to integrate cardio-oncology because it's it's not a disease-specific specialty. So I think for the junior aspiring to be academics, they shouldn't fear that, you know, you're branching too far away from where you were originally trained. I think I probably would encourage that to be more exposed to a lot of different areas prior to really call yourself an expert in a particular area. So that would be my advice. And certainly, you know, not be afraid to actually dig into areas that you have no idea to begin with and then develop knowledge over time. If I could just add to that, something that Dawn has started this podcast with is the release of the new guidelines with 270-odd two recommendations and only five of them have been level A. So my advice to the more junior people is to say, look, cardio-oncology is actually an exciting field. We have more than 260 recommendations that actually require more research because they're just consensus statement. The scope to make a difference in the research is enormous. And cardio-oncology not being so specific to one disease, there is a lot of breadth and depth of things that you can pick and make your own and make a lot of difference. And there is so much scope for personalized care for the clinicians that, once again, you know, you can make a lot of difference to our patients. There is a lot of different niches within the cardio-oncology that one can pursue. And there is one of the very few areas in cardiovascular medicine that is very, very personalized. Oncology has been that way for a while, but cardiovascular medicine is just getting there. And the opportunities within cardio-oncology are enormous. So the guidelines that you're referring to are European Society of Cardiology, yes. Cardio-Oncology Guidelines that were published 2022, is that correct, I think? 2022 at the end of August last year? Yes, we'll put the reference in the show notes. So if anybody wants to have a look at 133 pages of them to inspire them to work in cardio-oncology, <laughs> you'll be able to easily find it. But it is true, there is more to cardio-oncology than 133 pages, much more to come. It's not always ideal, but there is a fairly nice patient guide to those guidelines sort of written for the patients. It's about seven or eight pages long. It's still a little bit technical, but it is a much easier read, especially for those patients who are interested. Indeed. And I'm particularly excited as an oncologist that both of you started in cardiovascular medicine, but of course now you are both experts in supportive care which is music to my ears. So to finish off this podcast, can I ask each of you for your top reasons why supportive care matters? And yes, you are allowed to anchor that in cardio-oncology if you so desire. I think as disease management become much more integrated, supportive care for cancer, as you, you mentioned before, has multiple purposes, not only just to improve the cancer journey itself, but also for multiple different aspects and not just cardiovascular health, but also a mental health aspect as well as metabolic health. So as it gets more integrated into a much more multidisciplinary approach to patient care, supportive care actually becomes an integral part of all management of disease states, and I think especially in cancer. I think, just put my five cents worth, I think supportive care is really important because it really, you know, with all the advances of treatment and management and diagnosis, supportive care really puts patient 
at the center of the care. And the whole goal of it is to take into account patient, their family, their environment, and provide the most appropriate support for that patient in their situation and ultimately improve patient's experience. And we know that that's in sometimes a lot more important for the patient than you know a specific drug that they're receiving. I think it does improve patient journey immensely. And certainly, from your perspective, the field of cardio-oncology is just a tangible example that there is more to good care than just focus on what's happening to the tumor, but more what's happening to the person who is living with the cancer. I'm really thrilled to be able to share your story on this podcast. It's certainly an example of tremendous success, something that can be emulated in other aspects of supportive care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That is all for Supportive Care Matters, a podcast created by me, Bogda Kozwara, for researchers, clinicians, policymakers, and patients passionate about improving the lives of people affected by cancer. Thanks to Mark Tai, who composed the original music, to the Oncology Network, our producers, and Canteen, our sponsors. For show notes, go to www.oncologynews.com.au, subscribe to this podcast at your favorite podcast provider, and rate us. It will help others find us.